Uh, school holidays, interesting time, isn't it? Your kids are going to make noise during church, they're going to be disruptive during church, and they're going to frustrate you as a parent during church. Can I say we love your kids, we love the noise, we love the life and energy they bring to our church, and if my sermon is boring, you just pick up your kid and you're just like, oh, my kid, and you walk out and no one questions you, right? So you've got the ready-made excuse right there, ready to go. So uh, honestly... It's a difficult time, holidays, but we love having children here in the church, so do not fret. Do not panic when they make noise. Uh, no problems whatsoever. All right. Who has enjoyed working through Peter together? The book of Peter. Into it? Yeah, everyone's on board. Loving its straightforward, direct, practical application to our lives. You know, this is your eternal destination. And then we've moved through kind of that grounding in heaven to, hey, this is how you be a godly wife, and this is how you be a godly husband, and all of that comes crashing down this morning. Now we are about to enter the realm of the utterly confusing and difficult. Uh, Phil said, a passage that has some difficulties, well, the great reformer Martin Luther, this guy wrote much of the theology that we still embrace today. He wrote the equivalent of a doctoral thesis of theology a week. Right? This is a guy with a great mind. This is what he said about our passage. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. All right, there you go. That's, that's Martin Luther's take on it. So, uh, to put it simply, some of you are going to love this passage this morning. Those of you who enjoy sitting around wrestling with deep theological passages and, and their implications and what they might mean, and some of you are going to go, I should have just gone fishing, right? So that's the way this passage is going to break down, and that's, that's all right. We'll get through it together. Now, there is some very clear, straightforward scripture to start with to fill us with joy. Okay, these are the passages that we ground ourselves in, those key doctrinal passages, and then we're able to move through into some of this other stuff. So, let's get into our passage. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up at 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22 this morning. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. You may pick up slightly where it gets difficult as we go. All right, let's hear it. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. Amen. Is that just so clear to everyone, straight up? 
Well, we saw last week that we as Christians submit ourselves to Christ's lordship. We commit to living good and upright lives, always ready to tell anyone who asks about the hope that we profess. Regardless of any persecution that may come our way, because we know that God has our ultimate reward in hand. Last week, those were the days, right? Um, Straightforward gospel truth. So our passage this week reinforces and starts with that incredible proclamation of our gospel. As I said, here's the center of our faith. This is where we anchor ourselves before we ever talk about the difficult passages, passages, this is the bit you must know deep in your heart. So our passage begins, for, which always means that links to last week, for, just as we might suffer for doing the right thing, what we looked at last week, for Jesus died for our sins. So like we may suffer for doing good, Jesus died for our sins. Now, this is unique to Jesus. It's important we understand that. No one here could die for somebody else's sins. In fact, none of you could be a sacrifice for your own sin. Do you remember the requirement of every lamb that was brought before God for a sacrifice? It had to be what? Unblemished. Had to be perfect. None of us. None of us are unblemished. None of us are perfect. None of us could even be a sacrifice for our own sin, let alone for someone else, because we're not unblemished. Jesus, however, he was able to die for sins. He died for sins, and according to our passage, once for all. Jesus, the full total sacrifice for sins for all time. The perfect Lamb of God, God in the flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid the full penalty of sin. This is why the Scriptures can declare, well, Jesus said it is finished. Why? Because the price of our sin, all of it was paid. The just for the unjust. So Jesus, who alone is righteous, Jesus, who alone is just in the eyes of God, Jesus, who alone could be the sacrifice for sinners, he went to the cross for you and me. Why? Why would God, the holy and righteous one, Why would the perfect, just Christ, why would he go to the cross for you and me? And it's there in our passage that he would bring us to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus has done what is necessary, paying the full penalty of your sin to bring you to God the Father for all eternity. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you've done. 
It's not about what you will do in the future. It's all about the fact Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin on the cross, the full price paid, so when you put your faith in him, he will bring you to the Father. That's important, isn't it? Anyone getting to the Father on their own effort? And you will get to the Father. No, you won't, because you'll stuff it up, right? You're a sinner, and so am I. No, He will bring you to the Father. His righteousness, His sacrifice, His work, the price of Jesus on the cross brings you to the Father. That is the gospel, that is the good news that Peter is sharing with them. How do we receive this salvation? How do we receive this sacrifice? That's easy, isn't it? Repent and believe. Repent, as you know, means turn away from. So in other words, I've been living my life for myself. I've been living in sin. I've been following my own dreams and desires. And I realize that all of that is about me and it's not about God. So I turn away. I say, it's no longer about living for me. It's about living for God. And so I begin to live differently. Every day I make different choices. Instead of self, I put God first. So it's a literal change in how I live. Right, that's what repent means, turn around. So now I'm thinking, God, what do you want? God, how do I make choices that honor you? So that's repent. Believe, accept that Jesus, God in the flesh, paid the penalty of your sin, paid it in full, so that when you put your faith in him, you will receive life in his name. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin and put Christ first. And he will bring you to the Father. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, but was made alive by the Spirit. He was brought to life by the Spirit. Now remember our context. Peter is writing to the persecuted church. He's writing to those who have been suffering, even though they've been doing good. And so what Peter is saying, the message he's proclaiming, church, is this. Even though you suffer for doing good, just like Christ, you too will be raised and vindicated. What a message. Christ has also risen you. He's going to bring you to the Father. Right now, this idea is not just found in Peter. This is Romans 8.11, okay? If you're following along, Romans 8.11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. In other words, just in the same way that the spirit brought Christ from the dead back to life, when you give your life to Jesus and the spirit fills you, you too will be brought to life in that new resurrected body where you will have life forevermore. Right, we're zeroing in here, we're getting this in, the good and glorious news, a message of hope and triumph for all people that if you put your faith in Christ, you will have life. The forces of evil will be defeated and God wins. And that concludes our message. No, 
No, it doesn't actually. But, but that's where Peter grounds us before we get into the next bit. So I just want us to be like, amen, we understand that, right? This is the rock of our faith. And then our passage continues from that wonderful start to, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. Now, some options of what this might be talking about. This could have been, as some people think, the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah. And the prisoners were all those people who were imprisoned by sin. In other words, all of those who didn't listen to the message that they needed salvation because the flood was coming. So Jesus wasn't personally present, it was the Spirit preaching through Noah to the prisoners. The difficulty with that is, of course, it says Jesus went in our passage in Peter, and in that scenario, Jesus doesn't go anywhere. So we've got a slight problem in that. Others understand this as Jesus, between his death and resurrection, descending into hell and giving an opportunity for those who died during the flood to repent and believe and have a chance at salvation. So Jesus, between his death and resurrection, descending into hell and proclaiming the gospel. Lastly, in the position I hold, which we're going to get to in more detail, is this passage describes Jesus' victory over demonic powers, and that these specific demonic powers, are the evil angels described in Genesis 6, 1-4, who were imprisoned because of their sin. So I do not believe Jesus descends into hell, rather we have a declaration of Jesus' victory over evil spiritual powers. Alright, so there's a rough sketch. Everyone tracking with me okay at the moment? This is a rough idea. We're going to go into more detail now. And you can all disagree with me later on. That's fine. All right. So to explain this more fully. If Christ were preaching through Noah, the idea of our passage saying he went doesn't make sense. The other problem with it is this. The word spirits is almost, by one exception universally used in the New Testament to refer to angels rather than people. So the spirits in prison kind of must refer to angels or demons, not people. Okay, so that's pretty clear from Scripture. We have one exception only, and that's in a very specific circumstance in Hebrews, which I'm not going to get into. But anyway, so universally we're really talking about spirits. Now, secondly... The word prison is used for people imprisoned on earth, constantly in the scriptures, is never used for people after death, okay? So it's used in scripture of people imprisoned on earth, but never used of people after death. However, tracking with me? However, it is used once in Revelation, where it says Satan was bound for a thousand years. It's the same word. So we have a spiritual 
binding that's going on. All right? So if you're tracking with me on this. Now, probably one of the most convincing things about this passage for me, though, is simply this. Peter has been really, really making sure everything he says is applicable to his target audience, the context of a persecuted church. So we have to ask ourselves, what would be the point of what Peter is saying if the context is preaching to the people of the flood about that impending doom? It doesn't really make sense to persecutors, right? It doesn't fit the context of what Peter's been saying. The other idea that Jesus went and preached a second chance to those in hell is hugely problematic in so many ways. If you think about the context of our letter, Peter has been telling everyone to persevere and hold firm until the end. Wouldn't it be entirely bizarre if Peter said, by the way, if you happen to not, there's a second chance. Right? It doesn't fit the context of everything Peter's been saying that those who reject God's offer of salvation will ultimately get another opportunity. So that doesn't seem to fit either. So it seems to me that Christ's victory being proclaimed over demonic forces is the best solution to this passage. Now, no one can say it definitively. I just think it's the best solution. In short, we have the Holy Spirit raising Christ, and then Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming his victory over the imprisoned spirits over the demonic. As I said earlier, spirits refers to evil angels, I believe, which fits very well with Satan's imprisonment of Revelation 27, if you want to look that up later. It's the same word. So, if we take that as true, this was specifically preaching Christ's victory specifically to those evil angels in the days of Noah when they were disobedient. Why? Why would you talk about those specific angels in that specific era that Christ had to preach victory over? Why would you choose that? Well, I really wanted to avoid talking about this passage for all of my life. But nonetheless, we're going to do it, all right? So we're going to look at Genesis 6, 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles there, because we just have to go there, because that's what Peter is referencing, okay? Genesis 6, 1 to 4. This will be recorded and online, so if it's not making much sense to you, you can re-listen to it, and we can try and map this out, right? Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When mankind began to multiply on earth, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. All right, this is why I wanted to avoid going here, but anyway, who were the Nephilim? What is this passage about? Well, many people believe that this passage is teaching that fallen angels, demons, procreated with human women and had children, half demon, half human offspring, 
called Nephilim, who were giants and extremely powerful. I was having a chat with a pastor friend recently who was pondering if the whole Greek mythology demigods actually comes from this, whether or not the Greeks kind of adopted that story of demigod, half God, half man, from this idea of Nephilim. So we were just tossing that around together as, as a possibility. Now, we're not going to spend too long here. We don't have time to do it justice. But some believe it's simply referring to the godly line of Seth getting together with the ungodly line of Cain. So that's how they see the sons of God and daughters of man. However, anyway, back to our case in point. You can wrestle that one out yourself. Back to our case in point. If this is the case of fallen angels, demons, procreated with women, what's important to note is this. This is right before the flood. And those half-demon offspring are held as the pinnacle people of society. In short, right before the flood, the reason God causes the flood is it says every heart, every thought of man was only evil all of the time. And in this passage, what we see is the most evil people are the celebrities of this age. It would be the equivalent of us saying, who are the best people that we can think of? Hitler, Stalin, Martin Bryant, right? Like we literally, that's what this passage is saying. They were the famous men. They were the men of renown. Who? The most evil men in the earth had the most celebrity following. So we could say that they are mentioned here specifically because this is the epitome of human evil. When the most evil moment of society, demons having children with women and then those offspring who are incredibly evil are celebrated as the best society has, then Jesus' victory could be proclaimed because they're representative of evil in its fullest. Get what I'm saying? So that's the epitome of the most evil society can be, and we have the victory of Christ specifically being declared to that evil. Now, that verse takes us to verse 20. It leads us to there. By the way, quick aside, do you know Peter will write in 2 Peter chapter 2 that our brother Paul writes some things that are hard to understand? Can't you just picture Paul reading this and going, seriously, come on, Peter, right? Like, I, I just have that image in my brain, but anyway, right? So in verse 20, if this is what we've got, we've got the victory of Christ being proclaimed specifically to those angel angels because they're the epitome of evil. In verse 20, we have God patiently waiting while the ark is being built. Now, that's a straight reference. It says there were eight people saved. That's Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. It took somewhere between 55 and 75 years to build the ark, similar to getting a boat built nowadays. But anyway, so it... It was a kind of that period of time, and um, roughly it says God was patiently waiting. He didn't destroy everyone. He didn't destroy Noah and his family. 55 to 75 years, God waited for the ark 
to be built. So that's fairly clear. But now we get to the difficult bit again. Noah and his wife and sons and daughters-in-law were saved through water. What does that mean? Saved through water when water was the destructive force that God unleashed to kill everyone. Right? So Noah and his family were saved through water. What can that possibly mean? Well, we've got to remember that the ancients saw the ocean water as an uncontrollable, chaotic and destructive force. Right? So it was this incredibly powerful force. In terms of the flood, they saw the flood waters as the instrument of God's wrath and fury at sin. It was a means of death and destruction for those who had rejected God for their own glory. For Noah, through that death and destruction, the water cut them off, though, from the sin and depravity of the world. Right? So the water raged, the fury of God, destroying what was evil and sinful, and Noah and his family were saved from the sin and evil of the world. So through the pouring out of God's anger on the world, well, corresponding to that, we have verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Baptism now corresponds to this and saves you. Now, this is not what we believe in this church, is it? We're not saved by baptism. We think of the thief on the cross who was not baptized, but he was not, but he was saved. So we don't think baptism, so again, what is our passage saying? We're going to compare and contrast baptism with the flood. So the waters of the flood were used as God's agent of death for sinners. Clear? Waters of the flood, God's agent of death for sinners. Similarly, baptism, the word baptism means immerse. That's what it means. It has no other meaning, right? It's a Greek word that says immerse. So go and, um, you know, drive your car into the dam, and you would say in Greek immerse, right? It, it's, that's what the word means. It's a normal Greek word. Now, the waters of the flood were God's agent of death for sinners. In baptism, when you go under the water, you are dying. That's the picture of the flood water of baptism. As you go under, as you are submerged, the water represents death. Every baptism, we kill someone, right? Now, I'm never going to get you baptized now, am I? But anyway... Literally, I'm not making it up. This is Romans 6.3, right? Romans 6.3, listening. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's what it's about. When you are baptized, when you go under the water, it's representing the death that already occurred, sure, but it's representing the fact as you go into the water, you go into the grave. It represents your burial. It represents the floodwaters of death. Now, in the New Testament, you survive your baptism, I hope. You survive your baptism because you were baptized with 
Christ. And as Christ was resurrected, you too are resurrected, right? This is what our passages, this passage teaches us. So the waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate destruction is at hand, but believers are rescued because we are baptized with into Christ. Let me give you that full little passage from Romans. I want you to take this image, right? This is Romans 6, 3 to 5. We just heard the first bit, but listen to the full bit. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness, likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? This is baptism. You are subjected to the wrath and fury of God which kills your sinful nature. But because you are united in Christ, you rise with his righteousness. You are born again into the life of Christ. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by the, by the triumph of Christ's victory over death. Doesn't that add a fuller picture to baptism, by the way? Right? The stormy waters of the fury of God at sin as you die. And then the life you now have in Christ, united with him in his resurrection. That's the picture of baptism. And Peter says it's just like Noah. Forget about the basin. We need to wait for a cyclone and just go to open water. Just be like, there's some stormy, chaotic waters. Now get out there, right? Um, but that's the picture we want. And then united in his resurrection. Now, all of this that Peter has been sharing, everything he said builds to verse 22, and we'll sum it all up shortly. So all of it just builds and builds in this argument to where he says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So the resurrected Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God with angels. Now note, it's the same word here as spirits. He preached to those spirits in heaven, same word. So Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God with spirits, authorities, and powers subject to him. Christ has won. Through suffering, he defeated defeated his enemies, and now resides in glory. This is the key meaning of this passage. And the fact that because you are included in Christ means that although you may suffer, you too will rise to share in his glory. Now, if we don't bog down here into little detailed arguments, the message that we're left with is this. 
The message declared to the evil spirits who were the epitome of evil. The message that the spirit cried out was that all forces, all authorities, all powers, all of creation, Jesus has triumphed through his bloodshed on the cross. The price has been paid. The victory has been won. There is no accusation you can bring against God's elect. You are subject to Christ because he rightfully rules in justice. This is what Peter wanted his readers to understand. Though you, church, may suffer, though the trial could be incredibly hard. Jesus has paid for your sin and he shall come in glory. His full power and authority displayed in his triumph over evil to take you home. How great is our God. This is what Peter was saying. So let's not bog down into some of the difficulties here. They're fun to wrestle with a friend over coffee. But we know what he was saying is Christ's victory is complete and he reigns at the right hand of the Father and all things are subject to him. And he will bring you home. That's the message of our passage. Let's pray. Lord, try as I might, I, I have a feeble ability to try and communicate this passage and I find it hard and tricky and uh, Lord, we accept that. But we do pray, Lord, that you would take your word and its truth that Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father, that he has victory over all authorities and powers, that he reigns and rules and he will bring us home. Lord, may that be deep in our heart. May that truth give us hope to keep giving an answer, to keep sharing the good news, to keep uh, faithful when the days are dark. Lord, we pray that we would celebrate your greatness, your goodness, Lord, your glory and majesty as you reign. Lord, make that truth something we cling to and can never move from. Hold us there by your spirit, we 